This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today with Bill Fleckenstein. Bill is a professional money manager with over 30 years of experience in the financial markets. You can follow his thoughts and commentaries on fleckensteincapital.com. So, Bill, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. Let's firstly talk about your newsletter and how new subscribers can benefit and learn from your market commentaries. Can you let us know a little bit about it? Well, um, I started writing the column in 1996 as just kind of a lark. Some guys I know started an internet portal, which is kind of a quaint thought now. But And so I they wanted to have some sports and finance and they had a couple of big time sports writers. So I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And basically what it was at the time was I would just kind of describe what was going on in the market. You know, that was when the you know internet was just becoming available to everyone and internet communications was starting to happen. So I was just curious to see how it was all going to go. Nice. For a while, um, the column was published at, at the street.com and at grants. And then in 04, I started my own website. And really what it is, is I kind of describe what's going on in the market that interests me that I think might matter. There have been a lot of days when there's nothing interesting going on and I don't try to pretend that there is. And I kind of talk about the things that I do when I do when I do take action, which is not very often. And then I, there's a Q&A segment to the site where I answer questions for people. And I priced it so that anybody could afford it. It's, you know, 10 bucks a month, 120 bucks a year. So anyway, it's a Q&A and a market, a market column. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I get into things that are really interesting to me. And then there's a lot of times when not much is going on. So anyway, that's that's what it is. Brilliant. Thank you. So, uh, Bill, I'm going to jump straight into it. This weekend, we saw a drone attack causing havoc in Saudi Arabia, affecting the production of 5.7 million barrels of oil a day. Now, in your opinion, how would this impact the markets going forward? Not only uh, the short-term view, but more structural changes that might happen. Well, it's sort of a two-pronged issue. Number one is, what does the higher price do to the world economy? And part of that is going to be a function of how long this goes on, what sort of retaliatory steps Trump takes, if any, how effective they may or may not be. You know, uh, so for instance, if we were to strike back in Iran and, you know, we scored a bullseye, whatever that is, it could be quite bullish for the world. If we, you know, just stirred up more trouble, uh, it could be a protracted mess. And I'm talking now more, I shifted more to from a, the ge a geopolitical standpoint. I don't think there's been a lot of geopolitical risk premium in any market, except for things that were associated with the trade friction. So we might have higher oil prices, which would impact economies and also, you know, a, a, a ratcheting up of geopolitical risk and angst and things like that. It's kind of hard to say 
because we don't really know, like I say, how this is going to play out, what Trump may do, how effective it may be. It definitely means that in the very short run, risks have become elevated. Obviously, the U.S. stock market, I didn't spend a lot of time looking at other markets today, but U.S. stock market shrugged it off as it shrugged off almost everything, you know, in the last uh, decade and certainly in the last few years. But I don't know that that, that is necessarily a, a good indicator. I, I think that in some ways, the U.S. stock market's kind of been anesthetized by you know, free money and um, momentum strategies and things like that. So anyway, I don't think we can tell just yet how serious the ramifications of this will be. But uh, in the short run, tensions are going to be much higher at a minimum. Interesting that you mentioned risk because uh, stock markets are hitting new highs despite all the risks we are seeing. Uh, trade wars, over-the-top valuations, European banks, etc., so do you think this bubble is caused by algos and passive investing, obviously with the help of the central banks? Well, yeah, I think it's in reverse order. This is the central banks. <laughs> it's the central banks. And sort of the, the lunacy of the day, if you will, although there's a lot of them, is partly the belief that these computers can somehow do all these marvelous things and it'll all work out and you can have all these passive funds and ETFs where they people think there's massive liquidity when the underlying securities may not have liquidity. So the central banks have created an environment that where they've distorted everything because they've forced rates to zero and below, which has distorted every asset market in the world. Some to a larger degree than others. So then when you throw in algos, then you you get this odd mix and, and they wind up solving for momentum, it appears. And so they all do the same thing and it all goes and it go, all goes along well until some until it eventually blows up. And there's so much of this it's just complete silliness that at some point it will, will implode. I don't know when, but it, it, it's a completely a construct of the central banks. You know, people forget that from 29 until, from, from sorry, say after, after the 1929 stock market crash in America, there were no major stock market bubbles until we had the one in Japan that culminated in 1989 and from which they still haven't recovered. And, you know, then Greenspan created a, a, a stock bubble and they tried to fix the fallout from that by the same medicine, only more intensely. We wound up a real estate and leverage bubble and that blew up. And then they tried to fix that with the same medicine that caused that problem. And now we've got this. And of course, the ECB and the BOJ and the SNB and the DOE, they're all involved doing the same crazy stuff. And so you've got the, you know, the world markets really aren't markets. They're kind of like administered, you know, I don't know, uh, administered pricing, so to speak. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's gone on so long that people that speak disparaging of it, like I just did, are deemed to be crazy because <laughs> somebody would say, well, you could have said that three years ago. And you know what? I could have. Sure. The difference is now, I, I think we're finally kind of getting late in the game because I knew I closed down my short only fund. I had to run a pretty good size short only fund until um, early 09 because when they started QE, I realized that that would make it really difficult. I was really running the short fund that I did. I was really focused on what the Fed did because I had learned that the Fed policy, my short fund, I started in 1995. So I was really in the in the meat of the central bank, the in what I call the interventionist, interventionist central bank era started by Greenspan, although it's gotten far, far crazier. In any case, I knew when they started QE, 
that it'd be impossible to make money on the short side for some time. And so I just didn't want to fight him and I just gave the money back. And now I didn't realize that it would take at least a decade and the stock market would, you know, triple or more in that period. But now we're kind of getting late in the day. The ECB never was able to raise rates. So that's, that demonstrates that policies do not work. I mean, you can't have policies and call them effective when you can only go one way. I mean, that's, that's basically drug addiction, right? If, if you can take it, if you can't stop taking a drug, you're addicted to it. And so Europe's demonstrated that these policies don't work. You can never leave these willingly. And if you keep on taking them, they'll kill you. Yeah, right. So now I always felt although I didn't think it would take this long, that the, the moment in time that would be important would be when the central banks were forced to re-up the programs. I never, I didn't actually even think the Fed would be able to raise rates. They were actually able to do it for a while, but obviously the BOJ, no one else did what we did. But so in the aggregate, If you just look at the collectively, the central banks really couldn't raise rates. I mean, yes, the U.S. did a bit, but so it's not debatable. These policies don't work. I mean, yes, they cause speculation. Yes, they move asset prices, but they don't do what they were intended to do. And what they were intended to do was to foster legitimate GDP growth. Now, these guys at the central banks are so moronic, <laughs> they don't even know what they're trying to do because they say, we want more inflation. Well, they don't want, maybe they're, maybe they're really that stupid. I don't really think they want more inflation. <laughs> They've got this crazy idea that if they generate inflation, it'll create growth. Now, growth can, some, can sometimes create inflation, but inflation never creates growth. Sure. And it all got scrambled up in the 08 debacle because these they were talking about they didn't want deflation. What they didn't want was a depression. And if we'd have had a depression, we would have had deflation. But throughout history, before the central banks became activists, you know, the periods of deflation occurred and it wasn't the end of the world. And there were lots of booms and, and busts to the, what happened in the, in the late 20s. Anyway, they had this wrongheaded notion that we must business cycle at all costs. And anyway, here we are today. So my point is now we're starting to get to the point where they're having to admit the policies didn't work. I mean, Powell quit QE early, not that early, but it was still early. Now they're back on the easing program, so they didn't get very far. So the question is, if they don't get the response from the markets and the economies that they're expecting to, which they probably will not, then when are people going to start to say, hey, do these policies really work? And if you start to get the psychology, if, if the psychology starts to shift from these central banks are extremely capable and can get the outcomes they want to, Jesus, these guys don't know what they're doing. These policies, policies don't work. There's going to be hell to pay in markets all over the world. I think we're we're now going to get to, to that phase of the cycle. I don't know if it's going to take you know two months or two years to start to play out. I think the 2020 U.S. elections will have a lot to do with all of that and what goes on leading up to them. So I think you know we're very late in the day for this uh, central banks can do anything they want idea. I have a long, long answer to your question, but that's that's what I think. No, that's a great one. Thanks for that. It, it's funny though because it looks like everyone's repeating the errors of Japan and, and the errors of 1929 too. It's like uh, those policies did not work, so we will do more of them. So where does it end? Do, do you see a crash in the stock market? Oh, I think without question, we're going to have a crash in the stock market. I think it's just not debatable. The question is, if we start to have any kind of a dislocation, you know, it'll ha obviously by definition happens rapidly. And I think given the structure of the markets and how, how there are all these people in passive things that they believe are liquid, whether it's an index fund or an ETF, and, and the, there's not enough underlying liquidity in the 
individual stocks, and you could look at the same thing in the in the junk bond market, and uh, and and then there's strategies for selling volatility and selling naked options and CTA trend following, and and the algos have, have all you know um, solved the equation for, for momentum. You've built up a structure that is uniquely crash prone. I think it's far more crash prone than portfolio and for portfolio insurance made the 87 environment. Um, you know, the, the crash happened then because portfolio insurance said, you know, down five, six, seven, eight, nine percent, whatever the number was, everyone was going to set, you know, everyone's going to try to exit via the futures and they couldn't get through the door at the same time. You've got the same setup now in a different way. The question is how much of a dislocation will can you get before the central banks ride to the rescue? Because it used to be central banks would make mistakes and they kind of recognize their mistakes and they they try not to do that again. That was what uh, happened after the what happened in 29. These guys don't recognize as having made a mistake. They think that they we, they just didn't do enough, right? And so <laughs> they they've sponsored this. I mean, the Federal Reserve has this notion that this the stock market used to be a reflection of the economy. And what they've tried to do is use stock market to drag the economy higher. They call it the portfolio balance channel. It's just you know gobbledygook words that they word salad they made up. But so they are going to take an active role in trying to stem any serious market weakness. And they'll and they'll be successful the first time. So the question really is if we started to have a dislocation, and that's not to say the market couldn't get down 15 or 20% in three bad days before they could try to rescue it. What happens after they have to come back and try to rescue it? Again, we get back to the more proof that the policies don't work. I think one of the reasons people still believe in these knuckleheads is because the US stock market has stayed strong, even though some of the other markets haven't, and people have made a lot of money in bonds and that's worked. But you know, they've 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 kind of destroyed the banking system because they can't operate in these kind of markets. If you're any kind of a business with long-tailed liabilities, like you're in the insurance business or you know government pension plans and things, those are all in big trouble because of this period. So there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And we just have to get to an environment where people are more introspective about these policies. And then asset, the, the financial markets are going to reset it in a dramatically different place than they are now, I think. But again, I've felt this for the longest time that that's how this would end, but I knew that I didn't know when because this has never occurred before. So you can't have any timeline. You don't know what the lead and lag is, and we don't really know in what ways psychologies need to change or how that will happen because, again, this has never happened before. So, but I think sometime between now and the U.S. election, plus or minus, we'll get a big reset in the stock market and then the the feds will have to do it. The Fed has to do it. Does and then maybe we can start to see how it's going to play out from there. Interesting. You mentioned here before you were a successful short seller. Uh, we touched on the subject earlier on. If and if one look at uh, some of these valuations, uh, he or she gets shocked. I would say uh, I'm talking about Tesla, which you write about, and and WeWork, which is a mess and might happen at a much lower valuation, uh, the, the IPO I'm talking about, Dropbox, Uber, Lyft, etc. It, it looks like the more money you lose, the higher your stock price. Does it make sense to you? And more, would you be willing to short stocks at this point in time? No. No? No, no, no. It's, uh, I, haven't, no I haven't been short, well, even though I've thought that there was a lot of reasons and things, you know, the prices make no sense, but that doesn't do you any good. You cannot... High prices don't 
mean that the prices are going to go down, especially when high prices get goofy, then they tend to get goofier or much goofier uh, first. Sure. So the reason why these uh, crazy valuations have occurred of those things is because the world is desperate for growth. And so in a low growth environment, which we've been in and are going to be in, anything with growth looks really attractive. The same thing happened in the late 60s, late the end of the 60s into the 70s in America. We had the, the one decision nifty 50 stocks where companies had PEs of you know, 50, 60, 70 or 80. That seemed high then. Obviously, things are crazier now because you have companies that have multiples of sales nearly at that high, not quite that high. But but um, on the other hand, it is sales, not revenues. So they're trying to get growth and they believe because Amazon achieved scale of growth and then they started making money, which on the question that was really AWS, not the selling stuff business. But they believe that, okay, if they get enough scale, they'll make money. And But then they've seen with Uber and Lyft, it hasn't quite worked out like that. And uh, WeWork tried to come public with this third valuation and had all kinds of governance issues. This could be a big deal that a lot of these companies that have been coming public now are getting trashed. You know, there's been a tremendous money thrown at venture capital as well as private equity. Again, because these pension plans and insurance companies, they need higher returns than are available from the bond market or really the stock market. So they're just closing their eyes and betting and hoping that if they take more risk doing this other stuff, the fact that they took more risk will give them higher returns. But now you're starting to see these valuations cave in a bit. That could be an important piece to the puzzle the fact that these things are starting to break down that I think that I think that's meaningful but it doesn't mean anything shortable so I for one I'm not tempted to be short because I can see that it's not working I mean short selling isn't a religion you know it's a it's a you spo- you do it to make money and you we're not in an environment yet where you can make money I would like to see the averages crack a little bit in a way that I thought I can understand and then I could believe maybe that the air was going out of the balloon and I could figure out how I wanted to uh, you know um, set my you know my risk parameters or where I would you know cover stuff I mean short selling risk management is extremely important sure I'm not talking about people that there, there are a lot of people that run long short money and and, and I'm sure there's some of them are very good, but I think a lot of them are doing it just because they get paid more for doing that. And I see the kind of shorts that people are in, and it's not going to work. It's not going to work the way they think. I mean, running a short book is very tricky, and I think you have to have, you know, uh, um, you have to really very disciplined about trying to control the risk and all that kind of stuff. I don't see the things that I that I would want to see to be short. So I'm not sure. Having said that, yeah, I am short a little bit of Tesla just because I think the risk of getting run over is bad, is low. And I'm short a little Micron. Neither of those ideas have worked particularly well lately. I don't have very big positions. They're actually quite small. But I figure if I can't make money on those two things, (laughs) then I'm not going to make money on anything else. And I sure don't want to go after something with a lot of potential, you know, imagination component. That's what Tesla was so dangerous for a long time because it had a huge imagination component, even though demonstrably on the surface of it, it was a slam dunk on the short side. Sure. So I don't think it's time to be short. And I don't, and I don't, I don't like to sell, I don't like to short into strength. I like to short into weakness. Sure, sure. No, thanks for that. And, uh, and what are your views on gold and gold stocks? Well, I think that my, that's where the, the bulk of my assets are because I believe that for all the things that I've said already and the consequences of these policies and what they're going to do next, but the only thing you can do is, as a person that doesn't believe that these policies work and are going to lead to trouble is to own precious metals. I mean, the other things that people do is say, well, I want to own a currency. I want to maybe own the dollar or I want to own bonds because I think this is, those things only make you money if you lever them up. 
you don't have to lever up gold or silver to, to make money. They will do well and can make you a lot of money if just the policies just play out. You're not making any money in bonds if you don't lever them. You're not making money in euro dollar um, futures. I'm talking about the interest rates now, not euro currency. And you're not going to make any money being long the dollar if you think all this, you know, all this catastrophe is going to lead to a higher dollar, which I don't, by the way. But any of those trades, either FX or, or, or fixed income related, only work with big leverage. So I'd rather own something that doesn't require leverage. And then if you look at the mining sector, it's really been bombed out because they didn't do well in the big up leg in gold because costs rose rose mightily and they pursued growth at all costs, which is what people were applauding them for. And then when we had this five or six years of, of bear market and sideways action, they just got chewed up and they did terribly. And so they got very cheap. Meanwhile, you could find a whole, you could small, find a small handful of miners that really had done well and had found some pretty interesting ore bodies. So I felt like I, you know, if you, when you were talking to me a year ago, I would have said, God, I got a whole, I think I could make a hundred percent in a whole group of names pretty easy or sorry. A decent, you know, a five or 10 names collectively as a portfolio, I could make 100% in a decent move in gold. And we've gotten that. And and, and, and in the last year, I have a couple of ideas that are up 100% and more. Not because I'm so smart, just because that was, you know, that was that opportunity was there. So I think for a person that believes anything that what you and I've discussed, I don't think there's an, any other way you can express your viewpoint that the policies are going to lead to trouble and make money without taking, a, a, you know, a, a whole lot of risk. I mean, I'm not saying the miners and the metals aren't don't have risk. They do. But I think it's more manageable than a levered position in one of those other asset classes I mentioned or trying to be short stocks or anything like that. So I think that there's an extraordinary opportunity in, in precious metals. And if you look at the sorts of guys who've been successful in the past, really successful, um, there's a whole compendium of, of guys from different walks of life that have been very successful for a long time, which means that they didn't just get one thing right. They got lots of things right. So in no particular order in the last, say, six months, a year, you could, you know, you could talk about Stan, uh, Paul Tudor Jones or Dan Druckenmiller, uh, who have been bullish on gold. Paul was quite bullish and correctly said that when it trades through, I don't know, 1300, it's going to trade to 15 and it, it did. And, and you know, um, Sam Zell, a real estate opera, never bought gold until about a year ago. Mark Mobius, who's a, you know been a very successful stock market guy. Kirill Sokoloff, who writes a really interesting letter. I could go on and on and on, lots of people. But what I'm trying to do is give you guys from different disciplines, You know, one from stocks, one from commodities, one from all things, who have been very successful and they all have the same viewpoint. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll be right, but for a person who's listening to this and trying to weigh, does it make sense? If you look at the quality of the guys who think that it does make sense, you know, you got to take your um, your clues from someone. Uh, I share an interesting factoid: in the 20 years from you know 19 uh, September of 1999 till September of 2019, gold outperformed Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> by a fair amount. Now, to, to be fair, that's a lucky pick of a start date and an end date, right? We could pick a bunch of others that would not fare so well. My only point is, Warren Buffett spent is a well-known skeptic of gold and made no, you know, derided it, calling it a pet rock. But 
it has done quite well over the last 20 years. Now, granted, in the last seven, it hasn't done well. It did great. You know, it's had this period. Of not, but I think we're in another period where it can do quite well. And look, it's almost if you're a European, gold is a high yielding currency, zero being higher than, you know, negative 60 basis points or Japan or Switzerland or, you know, so it's not anyone else's liability. I don't have to give you. I mean, there, there's a lot of good reasons to own it. So I think it's, it is the single best asset class choice that a person can make. That's my opinion. No, thanks for that, Bill. I totally agree with you. Uh, now, back to the macro picture. Do you have a view on what the most likely outcome will be in the trade war between the US and China? And just to, uh, to, to, to ask another question on the subject, the slowdown in China has been in the news for a while now. On top of the debt and the, the bank problems, there are serious protests uh, in Hong Kong. Do you expect something to happen, maybe a currency devaluation in China? I, I think it's very difficult to have a strong opinion on China for a Westerner, especially if you don't spend all your time on it, which I don't. I decided a long time ago that I could never get any kind of an edge on China, so I wasn't going to try to have a big opinion. I think as to how it's going to play out, you see, the hard part is we have Trump who is willing to change his mind pretty regularly or, or emphasize one thing over another thing and change his mind about what matters. So he's unpredictable. I do believe that he has the country's interest at heart. Uh, having said that, I don't know what that really means because I think if push came to shove, and it meant doing something for the election versus something for the country, he'd do something for the election and rationalize it by saying, well, I can, I can come back and fix the economy after I'm, you know, president. So that means like you've seen, he's, you know, he's put on the tariffs, he's pushed them out and he's kind of mercurial about that. So that makes it kind of hard to plan. It also kind of makes it hard to have an opinion. The problem isn't really trade. I mean, there is the trade problem, but then there's the sort of the, the, the sort of the, the things the Chinese have done to, you know, steal technology or potentially spy, who knows of how much of exactly how deep all that goes. But there's a lot of kind of bad stuff, not in good faith, that the battle is really over, I believe. And at least I think as far as what the Congress thinks, to the extent that people in Congress think, I think that there is there's real concern about what the Chinese have gotten away with. And so I, I think there's a huge sort of political will, I think it's building up here and maybe in other countries about maybe we're not going to let the Chinese get away with all the stuff they might, they might have gotten away with in the past. That's one phase. Then the trade war part is something else. I don't see how the Chinese would feel pressure to do a deal. I think tr if we don't have a deal and we get into 2020, I think Trump would be more likely to want to do something cosmetic just to be able to declare victory and maybe try to goose the stock market. And I think the Chinese probably know that. So I don't see why they would give in on anything that's important. So it doesn't seem, and so they probably think the time's on their side. And I think they're probably right about that. So I don't see anything coming there. Uh, I think Trump's going to keep doing what he's been doing unless he thinks it's in his best interest to change that. So it's very hard to handicap it. But it, again, I don't think it's just about trade. Trade is one topic, but um, changing China's behavior as, as to how they approach some of these things, I think is, is the part that's going to turn out to be much trickier. Sure. So I don't think there's going to be any good news on that front anytime soon at all. And the fact the stock market's acting like there is, is <laughs> means that's just another risk that's, that's not priced in. Sure. So, uh, Bill, before I let you go, in your opinion, what are the risks in the market right now that people are not paying attention to? Well, 
think they're paying attention to any risk. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really seem to make any difference in the stock market. They go up no matter what. I mean, I, I've already listed a bunch of the risks. I mean, there's the liquidity risk. There's the, I think that there's, you know, there's could be risk associated from, you know, banking system risk, risk in Europe. Who knows where these, what the bad marks in some of these uh, venture unicorn things could be. You know, the prices are ridiculous. There's no, no, no there's not really any underlying liquidity in the market if, if this whole passive group of, of people decided to, or that people that invest in passive vehicles decided to take money out. So, I mean, and then there's the fact that the world is slowing down. We could easily be heading, we're probably heading into a recession. It will certainly be exacerbated if we have a break in the financial markets. So I don't think any risk you can think of is, is priced in. Sure, sure. I agree. I agree. Listen, Bill, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your views with us. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure. It was uh, um, it was an enjoyable conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at malopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. This podcast was edited by Aerolitos Smart Edition.